0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Urbanize Podcast. I am your host, uh, Wally Brown, CEO, Principal over at Equity Urban. Today, I will I will have the pleasure of interviewing Ashton Simpson, current Executive Director for Oregon Walks in Portland, Oregon. Hello, Ashton.
1: Hey, Wally. How you doing today? Nice. I'm to- doing great. How you doing? I'm good, man. Thank you for having me on today. I really appreciate you having me on Urbanize today. Uh, Good work you got going going on here. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. We, We love the work that you're doing and that's why we wanted to pull you in. Could you tell our audience a little bit about what you're doing at Oregon Walks?
1: Yeah, so I'm Ashton Simpson. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I'm the ED at Oregon Walks, and let me tell you, I'm excited about it, but it, it's a role that I stepped into, but it took years and years of, of cultivation to get here, um, so I'll share a little bit about that. Um, I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, uh, northeast side of Houston, in an in a area much like my community now in East Portland, very disinvested. Uh, my son... And my partner both think that where I grew up looks like a third world country. Um and that's that's by design, really, if you think about it, because though that lack of disinvestment that is prevalent here in East Portland is prevalent across this country. And it's something that we have to start to put eyes on. But we can talk about that as we get on, get on into it, because my environment helped shape who I am and the toughness that I bring to these, to any space and any role that I, I, I sit on. So after uh, growing up there, I went to an all-black high school in an all-black school district, North Forest ISD, went to MB Smiley High School. They both no longer exist, um, which is sad. Uh, I uh, then went to Sam Houston State University for a period until I, uh, I really stopped going to school and, and I, uh, I picked up work as a security guard at a mall for a few years. People don't know these things, but like when I tell you these experiences shaped who I am, they really did. So uh, I had a really good, cool boss. Her name was uh, Marsha Broom. She was a Marine. Uh, and when I told her I wanted to, to join the services, she didn't give me any other options but the Air Force and the Navy because she was like, you're not going to the Marines and the Army. Some of the best advice ever. Uh, got an opportunity to join the Air Force. Uh, did my training down at Lackland Air Force Base, San Antonio. Uh, did my training, uh, my jobs training, uh, with the Army Corps of Engineers. Learned how to survey, map, make maps, uh, project management, construction management, and a host of other things. And then I moved on to my first duty location, which was Minot, North Dakota. <laughs> I don't uh, recommend anybody going in the winter. It's very cold there. Um, and then I, I, I was privileged enough to uh, have gotten orders to go to Osan Air Base, South Korea, where I did a year. And I had a good time out there, man. Like I, I, I learned about the world and I learned about people and I learned that our issues in America are really issues in America. Um, what do you mean by that? So one of the, my very first experiences in Korea, uh, I, I'll never forget it. I wanted a suit because everybody, you know, you go to Korea, you get a suit. So I I, I went to a local shop and I, I went because of the name. I was just like, it, it was the shop. His, the shop owner's name was Bosch Chong. Mm-hmm. And he <laughs> And he was this little short old, elderly gentleman and he had a gold grill. <laughs> so in Korea, like that, that caught my eye a little bit. Cause I was like, Whoa, this, this older guy, Korean has a grill and he was so nice. He brought us in before we even started getting tailored. He, he sat down with us. We talked a bit. We had a shot of, of some Jack Daniels he had, and we talked a little more and then he, he, he fitted us. And then we were his last customers for the day. And he said, come eat, come eat dinner with me and my family. And so he, he took us home with him and we drank some more. We ate some more. I got to meet his, his wife, his daughter, his grandkids. And that was my real first experience of Korea, of being out of the United States, period. And I thought, man, this dude didn't know me from a stranger off the street. And I didn't I don't look like anybody in his country, but he was like, come to my house and come enjoy some time with me and my family. And that right there set the entire tone for my entire career abroad. Because after Korea, which was, uh, uh, I I tell people all the time, spend a year or two in Korea. You have to, at least. You have to. But uh, then I was fortunate enough to get orders to go to Aviano Air Base, Italy. Mm -hmm. And that was much of the same. It was very, friendly, inviting, like, when I tell you to be a black veteran and come back, and you're nothing. But when you go abroad, you get treated like a person and a human being, and you actually exist. It's kind of depressing. But at the same time, it gives you something to fight for. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Because you know that, like, you, you know, even though you're a veteran, and you sacrifice like what does that even mean anymore, right? You know, given the times and current status where we in, where we are as a society. But, you know, I'm 36 years old with the body of a 53 year old man because I sacrificed my myself for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, that's hard coming back, you know, and that you can't even get the basic decency and respect from a society or that they don't respect you until they you, you you mention you're a vet. It shouldn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. You should get respect off the bat. And that's the kind of the things that I dealt with when I was overseas. I And, and there's a, a, a small caveat to that. I'm sure that people abroad knew I was a vet because I was a Black guy in Italy or in Korea, and I spoke English, and I didn't speak the native language. Um, so there's this this underlying like oh yeah he must be in, he must be you know in the service,
0: mm-hmm.
1: fine, but they still treat you with respect, mm-hmm. right? They treat you like people, and then you come back here and to be treated less than, continuously. It's not like it's gonna stop tomorrow or a week from now. Like these are issues that continue to be compounded. Enough is enough for me. So you yeah. you know. I did my time in Italy, uh, four years. That's where AJ was born. My son. Um, he's an Italian citizen. I'm proud of that one. Oh, wow. He gets to, he gets to ha- have the, the, the privilege of having dual citizenship. Mm. Uh, and then I came back to the States, which was a shocking eye opener cause I was still a vet. Uh, and I, my last base was a uh, Fairchild air force base up in Spokane. Mm. And, and, uh, I I think it took me about a year and a half, almost two years to to readjust to American living. Mm -hmm. It it, it really did, because I don't know, I I was so out of touch with it. And and I think that part of me, I didn't enjoy it anymore. Yeah. It it, it wasn't my culture, it wasn't my lifestyle. I I learned more than what was being offered here on these soils abroad
0: mm-hmm so let's let's go from let's pivot from there how did you jump from there to being the executive director of Oregon Walks oh
1: so throughout that whole journey uh when it came to its end uh when I retired uh back in 2015 I didn't stop I had a grandmother she just passed last year from COVID
0: mm-hmm.
1: but uh when I retired she, her and I had a good conversation. And she said, in the, the exact way, and I, she said, Don't you sit your ass at home and do nothing and collect a check. You better. Oh, do- yeah. I'll
0: say, it's weird. my grandmother said a very similar thing. The last word she told my dad to tell me before she died, because I was in Korea when she passed away,
1: were uh, try hard and do your best. Yeah. Mm hmm Mm mm-hmm what wise grandmothers man my i'm the i'm the person i am today because of my grandmothers right i owe the world i owe them everything my mother too but my grandparents more so i i I feel for them because the same privileges and rights they didn't have those right Mm -hmm. so like part of me holds on to that um but anyway so like, you know, I retired uh, and right away, I think I retired in, I had enough vacation saved up. So I I can't. I moved here to Portland in like January 31st, 2015. And I was on vacation, military vacation until like March. But at the end of March, 2015, I started my first term at PSU mm-hmm. and I went through community development. So I didn't stop. I just picked up right where I, I left off and I, I wanted to go on this this moment where I could relearn and learn what I needed to to be back in this world that is what we call the civilian world. So Mm
0: -hmm.
1: PSU was a reset. And it was also a stressful moment because the community development, I found out why I lived in a black, all black community. Oh, yeah. I found out why, you know, a lot of food deserts existed around my community and why a lot of disinvestment Mm -hmm. Happened in the all my hair fell out, Wally. Mm-hmm. In college. Like it was, it was a very, very stressful time to learn all of these things because I think people don't realize they think community development is just this arts degree, right? Yeah. But you, but you you and I both know that community development, you actually go and learn about the policies and decisions that were made in the past that have gotten us here today. And and part of being a developer is you have to be able to identify some of the faults that have happened in the past so that we can remedy them, remedy them today, but also be aware of not making the same mistakes in the future. Mm-hmm. But people don't see community development. that way they, they think it's just nonprofit work when it, it's, it, that's a component of it, but there's some long-term policy aspects of it too.
0: Oh yeah.
1: Um, so, you know, graduated from PSU in 2017, uh, Community development, cum laude. Oh,
0: cum laude. Cum laude. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Uh,
1: and then uh, I could i didn't find work right away. Oh yeah.
0: How long did it take you?
1: Uh, so this is this is deeply personal, but I for a moment we were displaced because I graduated in the fall of 2017. Okay. And then, uh, my, I didn't find work and I was on a, uh, a, a veterans, uh, rehab program for, it was like the GI bill, but it's called voc rehab. Mm-hmm. And it's like the GI bill on steroids, Right, stable vets. So, uh, they paid me out, you know, two more months prior, I mean, uh, post-graduation and, uh, my lease was up and I hadn't found work. So. My family at the time was displaced so my son and my wife at the at the time had to move to uh stay with relatives in the south Mm -hmm. and i had to live with my mentor for a a, a brief period while i looked for work Mm -hmm. and this all happened in december right so january i didn't find work I, i was putting in applications putting in applications and then one day a friend of mine was working downtown Uh, near 5th and Burnside, Mm -hmm. and uh, I had, I was on the job hunt, and I happened to have a couple of uh, resumes in my backpack, and I saw this truck that said Colas Construction, and I saw two gentlemen nicely dressed standing outside, so I was like, let me go, let me go see what's going on here, and so I walked up, and sure enough, it was Andrew and Armand Colas. Armand Colas is the founder and, uh, and the founder of Colas, and his son now is the acting president or is the president and CEO of the company. Mm -hmm. I gave them a resume and they said, why aren't you hired now? And so I said, I told them, you know, what happened, graduation. And I did apply at a couple of the the white lead construction firms. And I I did face some discrimination there. Um, But in two weeks, Colas hired me on as a project engineer. Oh, Wow. So February 2018, I was on board at COLIS. By June of 2018, I had bought a home and I had moved my son back here with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked at Coles, Um, And during that time, I was still engaged in the community. Um, and during that, that time in life, the most I could dedicate my time to was EPAP, East Portland Action Plan. Mm-hmm. Um and so, this was during the time when Laura Wintergreen was still there okay. um, at, at EPAP. And she encouraged me to apply for the Fixing Our Streets Oversight Committee. Mm-hmm. And I want to say again, this is a, another woman guiding me to my ultimate spot here. Oh, man, I that did is. that. And it's like that, like, everything has taken off ever since. Uh, mm-hmm. Right, I, I've been actively engaged with that with that program through uh, PBOT, um, working through the city, doing testimony in, in various places for that. I program. saw you on one of the recordings. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, the moment came when the Rosewood Initiative <laughs> reached out to me and asked, would I be interested in transferring over into the nonprofit world and becoming their community asset director? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, yes, because, you know, as a project engineer, it was good money. I, I can't sit here and, and lie about that. That I mean, that's good admin money for good work. Um, but it's not a whole lot of exposure, right? It's mm-hmm. a lot of sitting behind your desk, permits, QA, QC. Uh, you can't, like, you're, you're involved in the, the overall economic development of mm-hmm. an area when you hire folks on and and, and manage their work and things like that. But after a project's done, you really, like your, your input and, and, and hands-on approach is, is kind of taken away and you don't have any really tether to that, to that area, right? It, 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 it's, it all belongs to the property manager. So mm-hmm. uh, that pushed me to Rosewood. And when I got to Rosewood, uh, it was different. In a sense that I was used to hurry up and go, let's get things done. Um, and then I got in this nonprofit world, and I'm like, man, y'all move slow. Mm-hmm. Like, no, yeah, no right. fault on the people, but like, it, 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 it's just the nature and the structure of nonprofits. They don't have a lot of resources. They don't have a lot of capacity, uh, and they don't have a lot of uh, uh, people. Some in, in some places. So, yeah, I was fortunate enough to be tagged on. Uh, with Kim Marks at Rosewood, he was the policy director. Um, And we kind of worked hand in hand, we worked with you to do the Rosewood equitable walking uh, plan, Mm -hmm. um, which I'm excited about because that's something that we can put into work in that community. Okay. And then uh, after that COVID happened and uh, it really slowed things down. Um, Rosewood wasn't able to retain me. so you know i had to i had to take care of my family i had to take care of my son and so i saw the opportunity to apply at oregon walks as one that would merge my development skills with my infrastructure knowledge to advocate for active transportation infrastructure and policy which is hyper focused right mm-hmm. if you want it to be but i think that active transportation should be a part of a broader conversation around housing density, economic development, access to parks and wrecks. Basically, we need to be talking about 15-minute communities and their connections, mm-hmm. how are they connected to things. And that's, that's basically how I got here. I know it's a long story, but like I said, it, it, I, I've been forged through a lot of different fire furnaces to get mm-hmm. to this point. Um,
0: yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for taking the time to elucidate and demonstrate (laughs) (laughs) your story. So I'm wondering, um, this is kind of out of the blue, I'm wondering, um, like being a community asset manager to being an
1: executive director, how has that transition been for you? You know, it kind of feels like it, I just, I don't know, it felt like a plug and play. Like like I was ready for it. Part of that was I did run for office last year. Um, I wasn't successful in gaining the office, but I was successful in learning all of the components to run a successful campaign, which translate over really into an executive director role because you're fundraising. You're reaching out to sponsors and donors. You're outwardly facing. You're the face of an organization. You're a face of an issue. You're faces of policy, but it's also your job as an executive director, to make sure the community you're, you serve is actually being served and not just given lip service. Uh-huh. And, you know, because a, a lot of what I see out here, like people do the work. There's no doubt. There are folks in this community that do the work. Um, but I also see a lot of clout chasing. And, I, I you know, I. there's that, no shade on anybody, but... That's, that's how they want to they want to roll. But I'm not a cloud chaser. I'm, I'm about let's get some outcomes so that we can resolve issues and move on to the next. Man, you're right, because somebody has to do the work, you know. Right. I, I, I hate I hate that, you know, you have to do all the jump through so many hoops just to, to bring an issue to light so that people can do something about it when they know it exists, you know, Wally, you you and I, we're educated along the same track. Mm -hmm. How long have the issues East of 82nd been known? Yeah. It's not like it's something that happened two, three years ago. I'll share with
0: you what I've, what I've experienced. Like, I think a lot of people know what the issues are. And I've, I've told several people in several different sectors, private, public, nonprofit, Told them directly where the issues were and in my opinion how to fix it. Like in my opinion was formed by like just listening to what people have said over the years. Cause there's there's a bunch of reports and surveys like from the city, from the private sector, from nonprofits. I think everybody knows the issue. They just don't know how to profit from it. And so they don't want to share information unless they know that they're gonna profit. And then that's but well, that's more of the same. So I think that's the real issue is people People are trying to capitalize off
1: opportunity as opposed to helping people. But that isn't that sick though? That's sad. That why do you have to profit off of something in order to increase somebody's quality of life? That's not my that's not my locus for
0: motive. I, I find it hard to understand that. I can understand the business model, but also I, I just don't understand that from a human. Person. So I I'm not sure. I'm not the one. Well, <laughs> Let's well see if I can well, get somebody
1: you, to interview. You, you know, Put it like this, East of 82nd has been disinvested for so long. I hear, and you probably hear the same thing, I'm in rooms a lot and in a lot of conversations. And people say, it's so expensive to to build and to to invest in those projects in East Portland. And I literally, I let them say their piece and I I step in and I say, well, you know why it's expensive? Because you never invested in the first place. I was like, at this point, we have a moral obligation, Mm -hmm. right? dollars be damned Mm. like you can't continue to fine-tune projects out in city center and do curb bump outs when there isn't a curb or a sidewalk at all in some in a lot of locations in these bump outs are expensive they are expensive they are mad expensive and i get mad every time i see them in communities where they have a curb ramp and then now they're getting a bump out and then I go in my community, and I see that there isn't even a ramp. You know what that is, though, right? you you know. Yeah, you know. I do. I do. Okay. I do.
0: For the audience, for just for the audience' sake, like what I've heard is that, like, if you don't have the lot, like as you go for out further east, some some sections of the city will, some providers of the city will make homeowners uh, sign a waiver. To say that they will not be served. Like if they buy that house, they're doing it with the knowledge that they won't have a paved street or a paved sidewalk and that the city will not serve them in that capacity. And then you'll see curb cuts downtown because like people have they're basically lawsuits. A lot of action won't take place without a lawsuit. And some somebody sued to say city wasn't going up to ADA standards. And so where there were mm. sidewalks, there'd be curb cuts, and where there were not sidewalks, now it's even more expensive to build them. And so, right. they yeah, so the creek, the creek, the, the creek settlement, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: but, but see, the creek settlement though, it 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 literally like it forced them, like you said, litigation forced the powers that be to update its ADA standards that exist currently in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess my my question would be, is like, well, what standard do they have? are using or what lens are they using in East Portland? Because every lens that PBOT has created, equity lens, environmental lens, same with Metro, they all point to investments that need to happen in East Portland. And I don't know, I, I, like you, I can't wrap my head around it because I'm like, when, when does the Creek settlement apply to East Portland? When there is like street furnishings in, right in the middle of the sidewalk. There is no access to a sidewalk for hmm. stretches. There is no access to a crosswalk. The lighting is ina- inadequate. Speeds are too high. I mean, the list goes on and on. And it, like, like I said before, this is by design, right? These roads are designed that way.
0: Honestly, I think what we're going to need, I think there's one or two options. That's what, the, what I see. For representation in East Portland, like one, we get a city manager. Like hopefully, with the city charter commission mm-hmm. as city man, I'm I'm hopeful. Uh, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm hoping they have some good people on there. Um, shout out to Hannah Osmond from BPS on there. And then, um, I'm hoping we get a city manager because if we get a city manager, we can easily, we can easily enforce like the. The equitable distribution of funding, bureau by bureau, like we already track it, bureau by bureau, and they're on the public uh, Tableau dashboards. If people Google um, Tableau, City of Portland investments, like you can see by sextant or quadrant, Mm -hmm. where money's going. So either get a city manager who can enforce that, or because politics are really driving the central city, like the that's where the population density is. That's either where people live or that's where people work, and so that's why people are going in. You know, contrary to popular belief, a lot of Portland—I think 51 percent of Portland—is mostly suburb or like single-family. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, 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 and, and that's it's becoming more multi-family, and so once you get the population density out in East Portland, but and that that's really going to start the gentrification. You're going to see it to be more in the political interest for people to. "Quote unquote," pander to East Portland and say like, "Hey, I'm bringing sidewalks and whatnot."
1: Well, I, I think too with that same discussion with the charter review, we need dedicated districts. Oh yeah, right. I mean, I know that that's like a duh, obvious, but I mean, it doesn't exist in Portland, so obviously, it's not a duh, obvious. Um, and I, you know, not just having a district, but at least two representatives or two two seats per district.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
1: That, w- that way we know we're getting adequate. We have people who live in our community going to bat. for Because the way it stands now, everything is at large. So if all the people on city council came out of the Pearl, then all the people in the city council came out of Pearl, and that's that. Yeah. So w- what issues do you think are going to get spotlighted if that happens?
0: You're right. I think right now you have a paradox of power in play where like the people who are in power to change that would be the people would be the same people whose power is basically decreased from passing it if you Mm -hmm. go from a city council if you even if you go to district-based representation that means that certain council members like could not run for they would be competing against each other for re-election they don't want to do that right if they're if they're all from the pearl if there's three from the pearl right and there's only six then they're suddenly going to compete against each other Mm-hmm. you know and certain ones they probably know where they stand you know right. especially if you have similar positionalities you know like okay i can't out whatever this guy or this this girl you know this woman mm-hmm. and then you have um the situation where if you were to you're basically nerfing the power of counsel you're asking counsel to distribute to like basically nerf the council the powers of counsel and anybody running for re-election doesn't want to do that because it'll handicap them from right. fulfilling their promises. So that, that's, that's the problem we're in, that the city charter commission should hopefully solve, but you have the blatant conflict of interest with them being appointed by a city
1: council. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. we need more community input right. in that process. And I'm hoping that like, you know, through that process that they do open up for public comment for these types of things to be brought to the forefront so that they can be addressed or talked about within you know, the internal spaces of this this new charter we're going to take off.
0: Mm. City Charter Commission, I think they, they definitely have open comment. I don't think they're required to do anything about what people say, though. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, As I think a, what's the point yeah. of public comment, right?
0: Like, Let's do it. I'm down to do it. I'm, I'll, I'll be there with you. I'll be. <laughs> My name is Wally Brown, uh, advocating on behalf of <laughs> All right, um, let, let's, <laughs> all right, let's go to the next one. Um, what, what are some of your go-to sources for data? What, what do you look at for data?
1: Well, as of late right now, the, the 2017 uh, Oregon Walks Fatal Pedestrian Crash Report. Okay, where can we find that? Uh, you can go to our website at oregonwalks.org, and it'll be under, uh, uh, under our work. Okay. And what but happened? what is that? What is what's in that report? It highlights all of the forty-eight fatal pedestrian crashes that happened in uh, Portland from twenty seventeen to twenty nineteen. It talks about uh, some of the the issues that caused. It talks about all the issues. Really, it's it's compiled uh, crash reports and police reports and breaks down each fatal crash crash by crash and talks about. Uh, driver distraction, uh, infrastructure issues that may have been at play, system issues that may have been at play. Um, But it also highlights and it gives recommendations from the legislature on down to a citizen.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, That's one of which, and I I highly encourage folks to go and check that out. Um, We'll be doing uh, some webinars here uh, in the coming months to, to talk about this. Um, another one is a good one resource on our web is the um, uh, pedestrian rights guide um, by Klein Law Firm. Mm-hmm. We also have that on, online so that folks can uh, know where what their rights are as a pedestrian, but also as a driver, understand what the rights of a pedestrian are from the vantage point as a driver. So, you know, that when you get to that crosswalk and you see that someone standing there, <laughs> you stop. But, mm-hmm. you know. Here, here's here, here's a plug for another piece of information. This weekend, I went and walked Tabor, 60th and Madison, to cross the street. And there was uh, three brothers and myself. So it was four of us. You know how many cars stopped for us to cross the street? How many? Further, further confirming the data and the testimony in the Walking While Black report that mm-hmm. Peabot put out? Seven cars passed until the roads were clear and then we could cross. Mm -hmm. They looked us right in the face and wouldn't stop. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you are a pedestrian, if you're a driver and you read our pedestrian uh, uh, rights guide, you know that if there's a a pedestrian at a cross, you're obligated to stop so they can cross. But I guess, I don't know, maybe because it was four black men, I don't know. They thought that eh, it's not important for them to cross right now.
0: I feel that I have a very odd question for you, like you you don't have to answer. I'm just wondering, like do you find that um different let's see like when you're walking as an individual versus like if you're walking as an individual black male versus walking as a group of black men, like that you are treated differently or versus say like when you have your child and your wife together or your partner together
1: yeah, yeah. I, I would say, yes, there are levels of differences. Absolutely. And so when I'm walking with, with and, and this is something that needs to be addressed. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a plug real quick for WeWalk. This is why we started WeWalk, our walking program at Oregon Walks. It's a program, again, based on the crash data from our report, based on the PBOT PDX report and the Walking Wild Black report based on what we now know out of the Multnomah County Reaches uh, report that um, shows the intersection between active transportation and health, and the ODOT report. We got five reports that all say Black folks have a problem in the right of way, a comfortability. So we started We Walk because of that, because I know what it's like to go and walk as a Black man with other Black men and we oftentimes get looked at like we don't belong in an area or we're not supposed to be there or there's this there's this this tension that, that we don't have it we're minding our business talking about our kids talking about raising our families talking about business talking you know but they don't see us as human beings they see us as a nuisance or a problem so we walk with started so that we can start those affinity walking groups and we can get out there and reclaim and empower our communities to go out and walk you know, damn everything else and damn what they're talking about. We need walking for our health and our mental sake and mm. our physical health. So yes, there's levels. That's why we started We Walk. Now, when I go walk with my kid and my partner, yeah, everybody's nice and friendly because I got an eight-year-old and he's cute. He's a cute black boy, right? Until he turns 13, 14, then he's going to get the same looks that his daddy gets. Mm-hmm. Right. So Those are nice now. And then when I walk by myself, eh, I tend to kind of just mind my business. Mm. You know, like if I'm walking by myself, that means I'm in, I must be in some type of reflection moment, deep thought or something. So my mind is drifting. I'm probably thinking about what grant I'm going to apply for you know, who do I need to talk to on the board for this? Like, you know, just to to break away, because that's oftentimes when I walk by myself, that's what it's for. So I can process a lot of information that's going through my mind. So I don't have time to worry about what other people are thinking about me. Now, I can tell you, it'll be funny one day if somebody engages me, and and they're like, why are you walking in my community? And I'm like, well, I'm the executive director of Oregon Walk. <laughs> <laughs> and we all walk. Like it is our, you know, my job is to promote walking and roaming in any environment in, in any community. And sir, yeah. you're not being inclusive.
0: Well, I think they found the perfect person to mm-hmm. make ED. And I have a question. There was a rumor about your We walk program that there is an album coming out. Is it being produced by Walker Flock of Flame? I wanted to, I wanted to ask, is that true?
1: No, (laughs) no, no, but that's a good one though. That's a good one. I, you know, honestly though, I think that because this program is just, it's in its infancy. And Mm. so we, we, we have gotten a grant to give it some, some life. So Mm. now uh, for this program, we're going to get some shirts printed that are designed with our culture in mind, some masks to match. You know, we gotta we gotta look fly when we do it. We gotta have the matching mask with the shirt. Get some silicone bracelets. We essentially are gonna make a walking kit to incentivize our people to come out, come walk with us. We walk so that when we come back again in a month's time, we can all throw on our We Walk shirt and walk together. Mm-hmm. Throw on our We Walks mask and say, Hey, let's go, let's go, buddy, let's go walk. Okay. Um. You know, I I I'm I'm excited about that because I think that too. Once people realize and see what's going on, like you said, walk who walk a flocka can do an album. Like, look, I don't I don't I much rather take the donation because I think that. Oh yeah, I mean I'll take the exposure any day, but the donation. You know what that does? That helps us with our capacity. What exactly what I talked about? Mm -hmm. Nonprofits to work efficiently, we have to start looking at them. Like, yes, they are a nonprofit, but they have to be run. like a, a business. You have a business like model. A business. Exactly. They have to. Like, you know, you can't be always grant dependent. You got to diversify your portfolio okay. where your finances are coming through. Like, I'm looking at all that because, again, I just started at Oregon Walks on the 4th of January this year. So it's been like, I've, I'm, I mean, I, I hate car references. So it's like I've been on a, a, a bike rolling downhill real fast. Oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> No,
0: That makes sense. That, that's actually how I mostly help nonprofits is building out their org charts, helping them develop a business model, getting all their stuff together. There mm-hmm. is a high need for that. There comes a point where you go from, you have like the idealists, then, then you have the more operational people. Mm-hmm. Then you got to mix both of them together and, and make an organization with a shared vision. Are, are you are you plugging are
1: you plugging yourself, Wally? Oh
0: no, no. I'm just saying. I'm saying. So, um, anyway, I'm just I'm just saying. I'm just I'm we are discussing. So um I just wanted to know, I wanted to ask if someone was interested in donating to Oregon Walks,
1: mm-hmm. where could they go? Uh our webpage is the best place to go. There's a link um, for donations on the webpage. Um, but I also, you know, donations are great, but I also, I value engagement and being involved. So if if folks want to be volunteers, if they want to get involved with our plans and projects committee or with our, uh, any other committees that get stood up and, you know, within the organization, I I take those too, because guess what? Not everybody's able to give a donation, but you're able to give some time, Mm -hmm. right? Time is, time is one of the most valuable currencies, (laughs) that will ever exist, if not right. the most valuable, in my opinion. So, you know, for those and that don't have, you know, the financial means to donate, we always take volunteers and we always will, you know, we're, we're, we're inclusive environment. So we, we take making sure that everybody's involved in the processes that go on at Oregon Walks. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful and I'm thankful for that because it's, it's kind of like I have these pseudo community advisory groups all around me to let me know and guide me around community issues. That's beautiful. I think that's beautiful.
0: You got four more questions for you. You ready? Right. You ready, Ashton? I'm ready, man. Is this rapid fire? Are nah, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So what inspires you to keep moving forward?
1: Change. Honestly, change. I, I So again, I'll be 36 this year. My son is eight. Um, he'll mm-hmm. be nine. Uh, I don't want my son essentially doing what I'm doing now. I mean, I know that there's a strong possibility, a very strong possibility that he will still be swept up into some type of equity advocacy work. Mm-hmm. But my goal is to like, if I can, I'm, I'm motivated by him. I'm motivated by not only just him, but the folks that he will either lead or be led by in his time, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm I want to make sure that's what my focus is: is making sure that we have something tangible to pass on to our future generations. Um, I think currently what we the, the way we do things now is very unsustainable, and really you just pass on problem after problem. I actually would love to see. And be one of the first generations to pass off no problems. But I know that that's far, far, far away from, from us right now. Let's do it. I mean, we're, we're going to rely
0: on him too, right? <laughs> let's do it. All right. So um, let's see. If you had the ability to change one system today,
1: what would you change? Housing. Mm. You know, I don't, I. I mean this pandemic has taught everybody that housing is a right. Mm. Just any sloppy toppy, like type of housing, like adequate qual, like real housing, like to put people in because I mean, I don't know what our elected leaders are doing, but like I know at 122nd and Siskiyou in my neighborhood, the houselessness and those experiencing houselessness is growing and is growing and, all I can say is like I, I I mean we have so many vacant parcels and so many abandoned buildings that are going underutilized while we let people sleep on the streets. Yeah. I, it hurts my heart because you know why it really hurts because my son sees it and he wants to do something about it. And he t- he asked me often, "What are you gonna do about this?" He's holding you accountable. Uh-oh. He's holding me accountable. Uh oh. At the, at the same token like this is an everybody's problem yeah you're right not just not just Ashton Simpson we all got to come to the table for that and mm-hmm. it, I think it's better for overall community health right yeah because then right. you, you get people housed you know you make that a right and and it's not to say that like you know you gotta like some folks require a family unit some folks require a studio unit like It it can be tailored to fit whatever situation that individual needs, but we can't allow people to just sleep on the streets. You're right. right.
0: Yeah. All right. So I'm gonna plug the EPAP Housing uh, Committee. You know, a lot of a lot of key decisions get made there, and they. They talk about budget. We have people from Metro, we have people from the Housing Bureau, we have community advocates and one of the co-chairs regularly attend city budget meetings. So if you want to learn how if any listener or Ashton, if you wanna stop in, like I know you have history at EPAP, like they talk about they're like, hey, this million, this amount of millions of dollars, it went to supporting this amount of units for supportive housing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well I, you know. I, I I would love to because uh, I know that human solutions is doing good work in the community building housing. Uh, they just built a Nick fish over off of 105th and Halsey there, mm. which, which to me is the like Wally, that is the perfect, perfect uh, uh, area to talk about the, the, the um, foundations of a 15 minute community. Cause mm. guess what's in that, <laughs> that development's there. Right across the street is a bank right along there is a bus line. There's two mm-hmm. grocery stores within walking distance. There's a max line there. Like mm-hmm. there's a, also Kaiser right on the other side of, on the Weiler end of the Halsey stretch at 102nd. Like there it's there. It's almost a complete community now. Now we just need the people and more housing like it. Yeah. But right. you know what pisses me off? When I see things like extra storage going up in a community, why are we worried about housing things instead of housing people? 'Cause I think you know
0: you know what I'm gonna say. Like you have more people people begin to hoard things, you know. That's a lot of people who have housing, they can't part with their things, you know, and they they end up so I know, I know it's bad. I'm I'm pretty min, minimalist.
1: I I, I I get that. I get that too, but like in a community where houselessness is around every corner, you put up a another extra storage spot. Like, we, we I think, again, why are we housing things and not people? Why not make house, housing adequate to house things and their, the people and their things? You're right. Some
0: people were talking about converting them into Mary condos. Because mm-hmm. um, Mary Kondo, she's this uh, personality out in Japan. She's mm-hmm. minimalist living. I'm just joking. I'm just, some people, a lot of people have been talking about conversions and things and like, but there's also a lot of public vacant land. Large... Well, there are some vacant lots. There are some parcels. There's been this odd, we won't get into it too much, but there, there's been a lot of conversations about what to do with the moratorium, with the moratorium passing on eviction. There's a moratorium on evictions. There's been a slowdown on like the quote unquote cleanup of houseless camps. That there's an open question like, are they going to be resumed when, that, when COVID's over and, things, and there's more
1: activity in the central city? Those mm-hmm. have
0: been to large questions that
1: have been up there. Well, I, I know that uh, like I one of the things that that I've noticed with the, the the houseless camps is uh the environmental app impact it has on a on an area because it's the intensity in which and how it's being used. Like again, if you go ahead and just scrape all that that top layer and go maybe you know chase down maybe a foot and build something actually tangible, you wouldn't have the environmental degradation in mm-hmm. some some areas. Um, and, right. and again, and again, you put you put in more types of housing because we have the Blackburn right off of 122nd at Burnside. Mm-hmm. That is it, it is a supportive wraparound services um, for folks facing addi- addiction issues. However, that's just one. We need like 10 more. And they all can't be concentrated in East Portland.
0: Yeah.
1: It'd be spread equally throughout the city. Yeah.
0: I think that's very interesting. You know, we'll be here. You know, district representation would be one way to move towards that measurably. Mm -hmm. So let's see. We're going to get into the next question. Second to last, what is your favorite mode of transportation and why?
1: Walking. Because, I mean, it, it gets me moving. It's the easiest. All I got to do is slip my tennis shoes on, get out, walk, and I can I can get to connections easier. Um, now, if I need to make a, a connection, then I'll hop on transit, you know. But walking is, is my ideal mode of transportation. I can feel that.
0: I heard uh, Christopher is going to be supporting your organization, the actor. Uh, Christopher walking, because Oregon Walks. I, that's what I heard. I don't. I don't know if it's true.
1: Look when uh, when he tell me when he when he signs the checks, cause I I don't know. Okay. <laughs> just, look, Wally, you must be plugging me. Like I hope he's one of the followers. <laughs> <laughs> we'll
0: see. It, it's in the works. Um. So next up, final question: How do you think COVID has changed your local
1: landscape? Wow. Well where do I begin right i don't know I, I don't know about you but since covid the increase in people of isolation has been widely documented i know that it's happening out here also there has been an increase in gun violence uh, i mean perfect example was yesterday morning i woke up about 7:30 And as soon as I rolled over to get out of bed, I heard six gunshots. And I was just like, damn, I haven't even gotten up and cleaned myself up yet. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing gunshots. What's going on out here? Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I I think people are just, I mean, somebody, you know, I don't want to talk about or rehash people's trauma or pain, but somebody got killed right here. the grocery store that i frequent in my neighborhood winco at 122nd um right there at 122nd -hmm. somebody was killed in the store and then the 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 individual robbed somebody at gunpoint and took their car in the parking lot they caught him but that's what's going on out here Mm -hmm. you know Um, Mm -hmm. but i i really think about our youth um and how this is impacting them because i mean it's hard on them. I mean, we like to talk about how it's hard on us. It's even harder on the kids. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, I, I, I see it in my own son. I'm glad he has little friends down the street that he can he can uh, engage with and go play with every day. But a couple of hours a day is not what they are normally typically used to. They're used to an entire school day of mm-hmm. being engaged with their peers and socializing now my kid is turning into another me, and I'm like, his his high school teachers are gonna catch hell because he's 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 learning he
0: hearing your passion every day, and he's like,
1: I'm gonna talk like dad, <laughs> right? So I'm like, oh man, like the world has has something to deal with in AJ. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's great. We're looking to interview him next.
0: We'll, we'll, he'll be the next when he's when he's um. Let's see, he'll be he'll be mayor, he'll be
1: governor, president, you know. And then Look, <laughs> in the country, shoot, he might he might dip out on all of us. He might get good sense and say, I'm out.
0: Yeah, well, he's the prime minister of Italy, that's when we'll we'll check back in.
1: Yeah. No, but you know, COVID, COVID has really impacted our communities, especially communities of color in a very, very, very negative way. And you know it's up to us who are in positions to provide resources and to provide outlets for them to start to repair and heal some of their that trauma that we've all experienced over the past year and some change um 2020 kind of bled over into 2021 in my opinion i think that um folks are in this big rush to get back to normalcy and i'm like there's no such thing as normalcy anymore. And there's no such thing as the big rush to get back to normalcy because, you know, vaccine or not, you still got to mask up, social distance, you still got to do all the things. And I don't know, 2021 does not look so exciting to me as I thought it would. I'll say, I, you know, I feel you there.
0: And I think, I think you have a point. But I think that that, you know, being optimistic, that makes 22, 2022 look that much better, you know? Mm. 2021, we, at least we, had, we got the vaccine rolling out. Right. Okay. We had a change. In, we have uh, more, we'll say we have more world leaders taking COVID seriously. Okay. We have more international collaboration, you know? between sharing vaccines, having masks, like we still have like that whole, we still have that still global hegemony, you know? Well,
1: well, hear hear this out and tell me what you think about this and on this topic. This is why I think uh, decorum and, uh, you know, democratic norms are important Mm -hmm. because last year after the election, there wasn't a real transfer of power, was there?
0: You know, it was a very stunted. It was very stunted. It was very prolonged. It was not. It was not a smooth transfer of power.
1: Now, think about it in this way: because it didn't happen, when the Biden administration finally started getting like transfer briefings, they were like maybe a couple weeks into to to swearing in. Mm-hmm. So he he rolls out a plan, and it was it's a great plan. Like he like he said, he's on record number, pace to, to, to get vaccines rolled out. That's great. That part is great, but all the other issues, this is why transfer of power is important because I feel like they are trying to learn all the mistakes that were made in the previous administration while trying to put forth their plan without having a real, they didn't have, I mean, they do now, but I'm sure in January, they didn't have a real good clear picture of all the things that was wrong. Yeah, and I think now you know vaccines are being rolled out. That's fine. That's great, but there are other issues and systems that need to be looked like our schools. Like, why are they rushing the schools to open up when? Because they're getting pressure. That's why (laughs) getting pressure. But I'm like, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at this because my kid is supposed to go back to in-person learning on Thursday, which he's not. Because I'm like, nobody in my household is vaccine has been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my steps, my stepdad, he has a grandson down in Houston. They went back to in-person learning. My little nephew came back home asymptomatic. Had he been around my, grand, my, my dad who has leukemia and a weakened immune system, he would have passed away. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't think that a, a lot of, you know, I'm okay with waiting. And I think the kids should have went back to school in the fall in the first place because it's only like maybe a month and a half left of school for them, and you're only really giving them two to maybe four hours of of face-to-face time instruction per week, which is nothing, right? And then you you disrupt their schedule. The way they have it set up is they do online learning in the morning, and then they expect you to stop what we're doing, take them to school so they can go and learn in-face, you know, in person, and then come pick them up. It's just too much, it's too much disrupting Disruption of the rhythm that they're already in. Plus, on top of that, you're disrupting the schedule leading into summer, where we're all still trying to figure out what we're going to do with our kiddos. Because, like, there's no camps. Like, kids are going to be at home with us again all summer.
0: Yeah. So I'll I'll tell you what I think about that. I do think it's irresponsible. I like I don't care what anybody says. I do think it's irresponsible for schools to be open like now. And and I, I care about what other people say, but I think that they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I think I think the evidence for that is like Europe's third wave that is going on right now. Like a lot of them opened up their schools and then you see it happening. Like I like using the polio vaccine as like a litmus, as an example, like when they were rolling it out and like the children were being vaccinated first and then mm-hmm. their parents and then their parents would catch polio. Ah yeah i'm just saying like i think that having i think it would make most sense ideally i think we should fully open when children have been vaccinated but at the very because we don't we don't we don't have like longitudinal studies on like for example we know that adults can become is me not being a medical professional but anecdotally if, if adults can become long haulers after becoming asymptomatic like we don't necessarily know if children will develop those symptoms like there haven't been a lot of longitudinal studies well because COVID hasn't been around that long to be fair so ideally in my opinion you know in my very privileged opinion because I'm not in like the hot seat of people yelling at me I think you would you should at least have like 90 percent like at least 70 to 90 percent of your adults vaccinated before sending children out and ideal and that would be like for me, that'd be like my bare minimum. Like, okay, at least adults need to be vaccinated. So when children bring it home asymptomatic, because they're gonna catch it. Like, you can't. They like I was listening to Dr. Fauci, and like uh, I, I follow public health uh, almost religiously, like every day. Just shout out to Dr. Amber K. Schmickt, who gives uh, Georgia updates. There is a lot of spread um, in 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 elementary schools, and that just kids move around. Kids just kids are kids, you know.
1: Well, think about this too. A lot of schools don't have the, the janitorial staff. No, oh, yeah. Right? Like, I know, for example, like, one a school out here in Park, Element Prescott, has one janitorial staff for an entire school. Like, trying to come back to school on COVID. Yeah. Like, as a parent, like, that's the first thing I ask is, like, how how often are, are surfaces being wiped down, you know, all the, all the things that we, we've come to learn that need to be done during COVID to keep ourselves safe. How can we mm-hmm. do all of that?
0: I think, it, you know, um, 60 Minutes had a special. It was on my, one of my hometowns, my hometown, Marietta, Georgia.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: was actually the special last week where they interviewed the superintendent of the city of Marietta schools. And he, he specifically spoke on this issue, you know, and that, that's why I felt so passionate about it. He he goes into depth about like his feelings about it, and at the end of the day, like at the end of the day, you have some people who don't have the power to say yes or no to that decision, but it's their responsibility to make it as safe as possible. Yep, you know, and at the end of the day, like the risk will never be zero, like you know, and so what is our what is our responsibility? Is like what, how how much risk are we willing to accept as a society? You know, and are we? Like I, I think if we were to frame it from that perspective, and then like democratically or at least collaboratively make
1: that decision, I think we'd be in a much uh, better place. Well, I, I, you know, it all goes back to this, right? Like, and this is my, again, I guess from my perched, my privileged perch or perch of privilege, however you want to say it. Mm-hmm no decisions right now should be left up to elected officials we should be listening to scientists
0: i can see that i think but i think you just wouldn't so i can see that right i can, <coughs> sometimes i'm in that camp of like meritocracy over democracy when you enter an emergency and i th- know most people don't like willingly like to accept that that, that that's that's what happens when emergencies happen and' like you war, the when yeah. you go to war, the military takes over. When you go to, and we even had that with the Defense of Production Act. Right. right?
1: Well, that's where we are, though. I, you know, we're trying to triage a, a pandemic. Yes. So <laughs> you have, but you have, then there
0: you run into the problem of our system of governance, right? It's like you can, you can have, a, you have, because you have a separation of powers in our country. Mm-hmm. which is normally very our like our form of government does not respond to emergencies well it's very well functioning when nothing bad is going on right but then Mark. when something happens like you end up having like you need power and responsibility so since the Trump administration was at the beginning of the pandemic the the scientists have generally been saying this very similar things like at least wear a mask at least socially distance right And then you have elected officials who have the power to like enforce that activity. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you have the people who may or may not, then you have the people who are somewhat separate from that. So you could have like, and there were many, and there still are many jurisdictions where it's against the law to have social gatherings, Mm -hmm. but people still do it. And you could have like a scientist say like, Hey, here's a science. Have a governor or have a mayor, like an example with Atlanta, you had Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms saying, like, hey, mask up. And then the governor sued her to not do it. Right. So Even people, though the CDC,
1: the CDC headquarters is in Atlanta.
0: You're right. You're right. But, like, the real, the real, the real contingent, the real, like, from what, I, from what I know of public health, like, the real crux of the issue is that humans are fundamentally social creatures. And so Mm -hmm. some people will not respect a scientist unless someone that they trust says that they, they, they trust their word. And you see that with flat earthers, you see that with anti-vaxxers. Like once you get their mom or their best friend or their partner to agree, then they become more amicable to the decisions you make. And that's the public aspect of health. Like that's where public health and like science differ. Like, Medical science is like, yes, this is definitely it, and public health is like, all right, how do we get the public on board <laughs> with what the health professionals are saying? And that, to and that's a, that's an oversimplification, but that's like a generalization of the entire field. It's like, how do we get the public on board with what the health people are saying? Because the most of the public is not literate in terms of like these these very specialized terms, and. That, that's true of any profession like you have like the law like nobody reads the terms of services and agreements like you'd have to be an attorney to read through those you, you would have to have some medical biostatistical knowledge to like understand mm-hmm. the test for like the reactogenicity of vaccines right and so i see what i can see where you're coming from but i i do think that there is a need for public officials because we are a public right so you need you need a you need because we are a diverse population you need a diverse array of people saying the same message to get mm-hmm. any program across under our system of governance cuz w- luckily in america we try to convince people and not force people
1: mm-hmm. you know that by no, me, i i, I feel that i feel i feel that and i guess again you know my background i'm a, oh, yeah. I'm a military guy so yeah. like if if that was to happen i know that if i was in and this was going down in, in in my within my section readiness or our you know the the biological radiological section of our like squadron would take over yeah and then it would become whatever like whatever protocols that they put in place that's what we would have to follow with like you said our commander would be the public official who would then I guess, sell it, but because it's the military, he makes it an order. Yeah. But think, yeah, go I ahead. I think
0: American. oh, sorry, you got it.
1: No, 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 I get what you're saying. Like, I, I, I totally understand that. I guess, I guess what I'm saying is, I guess, and I, I should have clarified, I think that science needs to lead the way and make its way to that elected official's desk to rubber stamp or to get on board with what science is talking about. Exactly what you're saying. Like this is what the science says, I'm the governor, boom, um, this is what we're gonna follow.
0: Yeah. And I will say as a, as a reverse devil's advocate, as in support of what you're saying, I think we've we've seen like COVID has shown the the limits or the failings of leaving decisions up to solely elected officials. Like at a certain point, yes, the elected officials should be involved, but they should not be the face. Like when Governor Cuomo was giving out the public health briefings, like, that was all for show. Like, he wasn't the one writing them, not the one researching them. But if, like, in other states, they had people, they had people, they had the public health health official giving the updates and the governor saying, like, I will listen to them. Or, like, with Keisha Lance Bottoms, because that's what I was following. She would say, like, I'm going to defer to CDC recommendations. And that's what we'll do in the state. So, you know, because there's only so much amount of time And I think that's what we do. And at the end of the day, I think Americans such as yourself, like who served like in the military, like you all are kind of uniquely disciplined, like most Americans aren't disciplined to having like a firm chain of command, you know, and like that's one of the advantages of having military personnel throughout our society, like when you have like a society like Japan, where like they, they just tend to be more disciplined because of their more rigid social structure. They have a city like tokyo like they their density is far far outpaces our the densest one of the densest cities in the world lower covid rates than we have across our sparser cities right and so like if, if we if we could if we could learn from each other you know and act as a society i think i think we would be
1: in a better place i feel i feel you it's like you know And I I don't want to go too much longer on COVID, but like when I was in Korea, when I was stationed in South Korea, people didn't have a problem wearing a mask when they were sick. Oh yeah. On the on the train or you you know be out in public or out and about, and they'll have a mask on, not out of like to protect you from getting sick. Yeah. Like the mindset that they put a mask on to protect you from getting sick. Yeah. Like you wouldn't see that here. I think we're
0: hopefully we're going to transition to that. I think that you will see that at the city to city level. I think Portlanders, for example, feel very Portland. They feel like Portland is its own like microcosm, its own society. And Portlanders want to protect other Portlanders. I'm not saying that other cities don't want to do that. I just I live in Portland, so I can't speak for other cities. And like when I was in uh, Korea, like they they really do have this like belief that like they are all connected. They're all one people. And this, this is, of course, a broad generalization, but like if we could have that, where we believe that we are one society, and what happens to Ashton affects what affects the life of Wally, you know, then I become invested in your success, and not just your success, but also your health, you know.
1: That, and that, if we can get that, I think we'll be in a better place. Then you're fundamental, fundamentally changing, I guess, society, societal wise, what it is to be American. Because that traditionally, you know, after we moved into cities and we we moved away from smaller urban or smaller village and, and, and townships and moved into cities, we became very individualistic. Hmm. We stopped caring about it. Yeah, did you ever take Doctor White? No, did I, didn't, I, no, I did not. But uh, I I feel what you I'm bagging what you're mowing. He he talked about putting down. he talked about that a lot because he was he was actually soci- a sociologist trained sociologist he was like that's when the, the the schism started with that that type of thinking we became mm. very individualistic when we moved into cities everybody became a stranger therefore you know so we gotta re- we gotta unlearn some things how about that and go back to what we. Traditionally, and, it, and it, that wasn't for everybody, because you got to think and remember, too, a lot of us was locked up and in tra- chains and being whipped and raped and beaten on. However, even though we were in those circumstances, we were still community amongst ourselves because we saw what happened after all of that. We had Rosewood happen. We had communities crop up over the South where you did have that homogenous community. People mm-hmm. looked after each other. But then again for whatever reason, when we get our foot hold and get a solid foundation behind us, us being Black folks, they take it away, so or they destroy it. Think about Tulsa, think about, you know, the riots up in Detroit, thinking about, you know, again, Rosewood, Florida, thinking about Longview, Texas, and the Red Summer and all the things that happened, uh, that the Red Summer was a bloody one. You should go check that out. Oh, yeah. If you don't know.
0: I feel like, just bringing it back, like I think that I'm part of black success in in the American sense is built in intersectionality, intersectional partnerships. Mm-hmm. Like I really do think that like this this role of BIPOC, like black, indigenous, people of color, like eventually it's probably gonna get more letters like like L for Latino, Latinx and like A for A, you know, but like announcing that like okay, yes, our 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 experiences are distinct. However, we have shared experiences. Like, I think that there's a lot of potential in that. And I, I think that there's a lot of classism and rooted under racism, where mm-hmm. like being black is seen as synonymous with being like low class or an underclass. So And so I think that there's some kind of natural, I think that there's natural partnerships between black and, and other people of color. And between black people and people of like lower incomes and even, even white people of lower incomes, because I'm from Georgia and we see that a lot. Like you go down rural Georgia, there's there's plenty of pot like you were talking about third world country. Like I'm not saying like you know, it's just this is a situation where like we have the challenge of creating a homogen like homogeny among headed heterogeneous groups. Like we need to create a shared vision while not Eliminating our individual identities. And I think every country wrestles with that. You know, and I'm hoping that we will meet that challenge. And that's right. why I'm relying on you because we're, we're gonna talk the talk. I'm relying on you to Oregon walk the walk for us yeah. to um <laughs> for us to come together so so we can walk together, you know, Absolutely. As, as
1: one people. Absolutely, you know, we gotta get there. Um, I will say this. I had a friend of mine. And, and my heart goes out to the Asian American Pacific Islander community uh, over what happened in Atlanta. Uh, I had a friend of mine, he, he is of Asian descent. He, we talked after this happened um, and I told him, I was like, I don't know how to console you right now because I know that when this happens to us in our community, the outpouring the first week is overwhelming, but then is slowly forgotten. And I said that that has to stop. And I was like, you know, because we were talking about hate. And I was like, you know, it isn't Asian hate. It isn't black hate. It's white cowardice and bullying. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. And like you're saying, we have to all like they my brothers and my sisters. And, you know, we all have to stand together and say, look, enough is enough. We are people. Uh, we deserve the same rights. We, that, that's why that 14th Amendment exists. Yeah. Right. Equal rights and, under, and laws and protections under the law. That's why that exists. And, you know, like we can't I, we and we can talk about this for hours because like, you know, part of that, that's a gun issue. I don't care what anybody says. If you want to shoot a gun, join the military. Uh, guns should not be a right. They should be a privilege, just like it is to drive. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's my piece on that, because when that law was written, it was writ- written to to uh, reinforce the power and the wills of white men, particularly in power. Mm. And there is no militia now that's going to stop the United States government from doing what it's going to do. You just want your damn guns because you scared. Of a lot of things that's changing in this country. And that's just what it is. Yeah. It's not a right. It's not a right to own a gun. Why, why, why is it a right to own something that brings death? Mm. Right. Like go to any other country. Was that were guns a right in Korea? Nope. Are they a right in Italy? Nope. Are they a right in Germany? Nope. It's the only place that it's a right and because it's a right our gun problems spill over across borders because think about where all the guns come from in the in the, the drug wars and gang wars down in the, southern, in the southern border yeah they spill over from over here owning a gun is a privilege not a right and i i i'm saying it on the record because it, it's it's the fact it's a fact because if you got a, you jump through more hoops to get a damn driver's license than you do to get a gun. I can go buy a gun right now, no problem. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's my piece. That's, I, I, I know that's my piece on that. Because I'm, I'm just over all of these shootings, man. They caught a guy the other day, white guy in the bathroom, six guns. For what? An AR, a shotgun, and four pistols. For what? What, um, what, what's your, your just make it make sense why are you carrying all those guns
0: i think he was a videographer ashton he was going on a shoot
1: so anyway uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh wally you're awesome brother you are <laughs> awesome man thank you sir
0: so ashton simpson from oregon walks thank you for coming on
1: thank you wally thank you for having me brother i I, I thank you for making space, man. I know I talk a lot, so <laughs> Okay, we appreciate you. So
0: um, can you tell us again where we can find you?
1: You can find me at OregonWalks.org. Uh, and if you need to email me, you can find me at Ashton at OregonWalks.org. Okay.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Urbanized podcast. I am your host, uh, Wally Brown, CEO principal over at Equity Urban. Today, I will I will have the pleasure of interviewing Ashton Simpson, current executive director for Oregon Walks in Portland, Oregon.
1: Hello, Ashton. Hey, Wally, how you doing today? Nice. I'm to- doing great. How you doing? I'm good, man. Thank you for having me on today. I really appreciate you having me on Urbanize today. Uh, good work you got going on here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We, We love the work that you're
0: doing, and that's why we wanted to pull you in. Could you tell our audience a little bit about what you're doing at Oregon Walks?